Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi and welcome back to Brussels Bytes. I'm your host Dimitar. And together with the Martin Center, we are continuing our journey across the still uncharted waters of technology and European policy. In our last episode, we had a fantastic conversation about Nietzsche, nihilism, and why technology is partly to blame for some of our personal anxieties and also the polarization we see in the online information space. In today's episode, we enter the world of finance and services. How is financial technology or fintech disrupting the world of finance and potentially changing the way we handle money, investment, and much more. What is happening globally when we talk about fintech, and how is Europe adapting to innovation in the world of finance? I'm happy to be joined by Stelina Kuzmonova, who recently completed a research paper for the Martin Center with the title, Fine-Tuning Europe, How to Win the Global Fintech Race. You can find the paper online on our website. Svetlina Kuzmonova is an international cooperation expert at the non-banking financial regulator in Bulgaria, where she is involved in EU legislation initiatives and cross-border cooperation. Previously, she worked on international development projects in Asia and Africa. Her academic background is in international development at the University of Cambridge and political science and diplomacy at Yonsei University, South Korea. Svetlina, I'm happy to have you as our guest on our podcast. And thank you. Pleasure to be here as well. So let's uh, let's start. Can you tell us what is fintech, what is financial technology, and why is it becoming a buzzword in the financial sector globally? Um, well, uh, fintech is becoming a buzzword. Everyone seems to be talking about it, and I think the hype around it is probably mostly due to um, the. Um, Bitcoin and the recent news from the past couple of years on um, how popular cryptocurrencies are becoming. Um, but I would say that for me personally, and I would say for most of the people using some sort of financial products or services, it is because the technology is al already in our pockets. Uh, in our mobile phones, we can um, transfer money, we can use different sorts of um, applications, different sorts of products. Um, even when you file a um, claim for a car accident, this is already fintech um, technology and development. So I think that's why it's becoming very popular due to um, consumers' needs. They drive it. Great. And um, so when we talk about fintech, it's not only about payments. Am I correct? Uh, yes. Usually, uh, the fintech technology is most uh, developed in the sector of financial payments, like um, uh, mobile payments and internet-based payments. Um, but they're increasingly uh, developing new technologies to accommodate other parts of the financial sector. Uh, for example, insurance, as I mentioned, um, banking, also the cryptocurrencies, it's a new development there. So they're really entering the... Um, the uh, technological developments are really entering the financial sector, I would say, in all sorts of ways, not only payments. Mm. On the face of it, fintech and all the examples you're giving sounds like a great um, boost for, for, for consumers. It's quite useful, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. 
how are the big commercial actors like banks responding to this? Isn't this a threat for the long-standing institutions we used to rely on? Um, yes and no, I would say. Well, these developments are, especially with payments, they're happening mostly because the uh, formal, the incumbent uh, institutions, the, um, the traditional banks, are failing in many ways. There are a lot of underbanked um, citizens in all um, in all parts of the world, including Europe. Um, so this is the reason why people are utilizing and starting using these kind of um, technologies. And to a large extent, yeah, that can be seen as a threat to the traditional banking system. But I think they're already ahead of us in all of the technological developments in the sector because the traditional banks are either already possessing some of the technology, they're either developing it in-house or buying the uh, fintech startups that um, are developing um, these uh, pieces of technology. So to a large extent, there is... Um, it's not about competition with these kind of companies. It's mm. about cooperation or um, mutual benefit for, for both parties. Okay. Can you, you, you touched upon payments, insurance. Can you, can you give us a couple of more examples? How does this technology really operate or how is it actually operational? Um, Okay, yeah, with, uh, with payments, yeah, obviously you have like mobile payments, mm -hmm. non-banking um, mobile payments, uh, but it's probably worth mentioning also um, the developments in terms of um, um, artificial intelligence, big data analytics, uh, machine learning, uh, because these are um, uncharted territories yet. Uh, and I think the future of the fintech developments would be um, related to how how much information um, a party or a company has, um, how well they um, analyze it, what kind of algorithms they have, what kind of connections they make, uh, and how they capitalize on it, how they monetize the, um, the data. Um, so I think this is something interesting to be looking into in the future. And um, for instance, uh, against to jump to um, insurance, for example, the big data that you have from uh, the black boxes in the cars or the telematics, like the wearable um, devices, like um, these sports um, mm -hmm. Bracelets, telematics. I think Fit, Fitbit, for example. Uh, yeah, yeah, those those kind of uh, wearables. The information that you gather from these, um, it's it's incredible what you can do with it, and um, it's the same with with payments as well. Uh, if um, a company has that kind of information for a large portion of the population and they can have the right algorithm in place to analyze these connections, you can very easily have um, unimaginable um, uh, connections that you cannot even imagine. Mm. You can have, for example, um, based someone's credit score or someone's uh, insurance premium on um, their behavior on what they buy. Uh, w when they uh, press the brake at the car, like what kind of roads they're driving on, uh, how well they're eating, how they're exercising. Like all these things can create um, uh, connections and be utilized in one way or another. And here it gets interesting and maybe a bit even risky and um, dystopian for some people that they, they might say this because the access to this data means that, let's say, a person with bad health habits, for example, or a reckless driver, let's say, 
this might show up on the algorithm because of the, the data which is supplied to the, to the algorithm. Yeah. And this person might be penalized with, let's say, a higher insurance premium or more costly car insurance, whatever. So what are the implications when we talk about privacy? And would you say that this is something which is still um, a bit un un uncharted and something which is a bit maybe causing anxiety for some people? Hmm. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that we are all already living the dystopian um, the dystopian reality and uh, people in most cases are not really aware of the implications of this um, I accept the terms and conditions tick box that we I have no idea how many times I've done it only this week without reading the terms and conditions and giving uh, your consent to something which yeah, might yeah, yeah. obviously um, and the implications are huge. I mean, of course, uh, Europe is very proud and the whole world is jealous of the GDPR that we have in place. Uh, but the reality is that very often we don't even have the information to what we, what we consent to. Um, and um, just, just to give you an example, because the, um, the examples that you mentioned are very relevant, but this is information... Um, that you can more or less make the connections between uh, uh, be between the different parts of the algorithm. Uh, if you're eating unhealthy, maybe your uh, um, insurance will be will be skewed to that side or that uh, this or that side of the spectrum. But um, there can be uh, even um, de depend uh, dependent sources of information that you cannot really. Um, predict or explain. Mm. For example, there have been um, um, a study that shows that al algorithm makes the um, connection between um, whether whether you're iPhone user or Android user and how likely you are def to default on your credit uh, payments, mm -hmm. installments, for example. Um, so this is something that taken into company or uh, bank policy would affect you in a way that you cannot even imagine only because somewhere that you've used your phone it says that oh this this person is an iphone user so they're for example less likely to default on their payments um so and this is only the commercial side of it um the implications when it comes to advertising to um mm, mm, really tangible impacts mm -hmm. on your on your lifestyle this this is when it gets really scary and after all we're living here in in europe where uh we have some safeguards um but if you're living in china where uh, most of these developments are happening on a larger scale than here in europe uh this can be pretty scary i think in terms of data privacy we're going to talk about European policy maybe in a bit, but I just want to follow up on, on, on China. How is the fintech um, sector developing in Asia? And is it true that China is actually leading the, leading the race when we talk about financial technology? Uh, if we see the world in terms of um, regional significance and developments, um, I would say, yeah, that Europe is definitely falling behind the US and um the Asia Pacific regions mm. and, and China mostly. Um, um, it depends what parameters you look into because in many aspects the US is leading the way. I mean, their financial system is much more uh, mature than the rest of the world. 
But um, with China in particular, I think it's very interesting that the majority of the population there is um, already using um, some sort of um, uh, fintech technology, uh, if I can say so. And it's um, the adoption rate uh, among Chinese is what, over uh, 87%, wasn't it? Um, I think so in, in your paper, you, in you, you show paper, data yeah. that they're actually on the top of when it comes to mobile user yeah, yeah. adoption. They're at the top of the chart when it comes to adoption. And this is mainly because uh, a majority of, pop not, not the majority, but the large portion of the population is underbanked there. Uh, and they're always having by, their sorry, mobile Sorry, by underbanked, phones. you mean that they, own, they don't own a credit card or an uh, account? Yes, they don't have access to some formal um, banking uh, institution or um, services, financial services. Um, and the majority of the people are with their hands, uh, with their phone in their hands. I mean, uh, what the Chinese companies, I, I hope we can also talk a little bit on the big tech uh, companies around the world, but in, what is happening in China is... Um, um, the majority of the population is already using the new technology. Uh, you have it really integrated um, in your phone, um, your uh, social media platforms, your payment services, your investment um, financial products and services, um, mm, mobile wallets, like mm -hmm. all, all these things are already integrated. Uh, so, yeah, this is, I would say, where... Um, mm, yeah, China, I would say, is on the forefront of uh, developments in the... When it comes to user, user adoption. That, yeah. That's a very interesting point. I've also read some stats on this. That exactly. China, I think, is globally one of the countries which has uh, the most people without a banking account, which causes lots of problems, not only for everyday payments, but also in terms of credit history, bank loans, and so on. So it's interesting because China is essentially leapfrogging a stage of, mm. of, of, let's say, normal development in many other countries, completely circumventing the banking route and now just jumping ahead with, with, with fintech. Do you think this is, this is positive? And I also want to add in that you've also lived in, in, in South Korea, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, what's, right. your, what's your experience in living in Asia and what's the attitude of the population towards financial services, mobile payments and so on? Um, well, my it's probably um, a terrible generalization of the, <laughs> the whole of Asia, but uh, I would say that at least when I lived in uh, in Seoul in South Korea, um, the population there, the people are very digitally savvy, and they yeah. really um, use all these new technologies that are new to us. I, I've been using them in South Korea since 2010, things that are really entering the market here in mm -hmm. Europe now. Um, so I, I would say that you have a huge population there. Um, the majority of the middle class, by uh, I think by 2030, the, the majority of the middle class, 66%, I think, of the world middle class will be living in Southeast Asia, uh, in um, Asia Pacific. This is groundbreaking, no? It is, it is quite big. And these are people with... Um, uh, with increasingly um, better purchasing power. Mm -hmm. uh, people, uh, usually younger people, who really are digitally savvy and they really can uh, use the new technologies and they get used to the new technologies really quickly. Um, but I would also say that um, I think it is um, very standard for the people there to... Um, 
to use your mobile phone for everything. I mean, in 2000, I remember even uh, as early as 2010, when I first um, arrived there, people were already using uh, mostly mobile payments or uh, cards for some sort. Of that. It was uh, almost like a cashless society. Mm. And I've seen that um, in China and Korea, maybe not so much in Japan, I think. Uh, but the, the governments and the people are seriously pushing for this concept of cashless society. Well, everything will be transferred online and everything will be digital. And here again, we, we, we come to the topic we talked five minutes ago about online privacy, because in the Chinese case, yes, for example, WeChat, which is a very popular app, it's a, it combines social media, photos, Conveniently integrated. And also <laughs> financial wallets, well. exactly. Yeah. And there's more yeah. and more evidence that the government is pushing the population to yeah. use this app because also it can monitor the purchases and it can monitor everyday life. So this is something we have to be mindful about. No? Uh, I think people don't really um, have in mind this idea of how valuable our financial information actually is mm. and how much information can come out of your financial data. Everything that you buy, everywhere you go, uh, everything that um, you spend money on can be translated into this or that type of um, either company or government policy. Um, so this is something that we should really um, be careful about. This is also pr probably why I find the whole concept of a global digital currency um, very frustrating. I'm, I'm both very curious and extremely scared about it. I'm talking about the Libra project. Mm. Um, the Facebook. Just, yeah, just to add in, this is uh, in 2019, Facebook announced that they're yeah. planning to do their Libra, Libra project, which... Yeah. Um, well, it's the idea of having uh, like a global digital mm. currency, which is based on the blockchain technology, open source. Um, but um, and it is uh, it is supposed to be backed by um, Libra Reserve, which is um, um, governed by an association of different partners and companies. So it's not supposed to be only Facebook, um, but. Um, for me, having like a social media platform with um, with the user base of over two, two billion, two billion, uh, 2 .2 billion people, yeah, billion people around the world, and using the information there to um, kickstart like one of the biggest financial uh, innovations in the world. Like basically, it's with um, um, with the magnitude of a gov government currency. And it's not subject to any sort of regulation or a central bank or um, any kind of control. So I think um, that's why it has been met with a lot of skepticism, especially here in Europe from France and Germany, I think, initially. Um, F Facebook uh, announced, um, introduced Calibra, which is supposed to be a subsidiary of the um, uh, a Facebook that will be responsible for um, the um, the development of technological um, of, of financial services mm -hmm. like a wallet for um, for all their applications for Messenger for so you um, go on your Messenger app and there's also an additional wallet for payments correct that's the yeah, idea yes yeah? I think so uh, and also the um, WhatsApp mm -hmm. uh, mes um, and Messenger. Um, I think the idea here with Calibra is to have to divide 
um, the financial information, financial data from uh, the social media platform data, um, which sounds great um, in theory, but the mere fact that you need to introduce such a subsidiary to do that thing in particular, I don't know about you, I'm not really buying it. And also a company like Facebook, which has a history of breaching privacy yeah, exactly. on, a, on a monstrously huge scale in the last couple of years. I'm also not very optimistic. But just to wrap up on, on, on Libra, it's still not operational. There's been lots of pushback from national regulators on this. And just an interesting update, uh, I think in January, a couple of big companies uh, who were backing the project decided to drop out. Companies like Vodafone, Visa, and MasterCard. And here I have a very interesting quote from the CEO of MasterCard, who actually questioned how is Facebook going to make profit and actually manage the currency. And uh, he said, and I quote, when you don't understand how money gets made, it gets made in ways you do not like. So, yeah. uh, well, I think the, uh, that's absolutely true. And um, from the white paper, it's um, it's very well written white paper for for Libra. And what you can gather is that um, they they were trying to uh, basically control the volatility, which is very common for cryptocurrencies, uh, by backing it up with this basket of um, low volatility assets like uh, government bonds and um, <clears throat> all sorts uh, of other assets. But the fact that um, and in the association there were these companies that you mentioned, the fact that even companies that were initially mm -hmm. in are um, starting to question uh, how coins will be minted and, and so on, I think this is already telling enough uh, for the future of the project, maybe. Mm. Great. I would like to uh, bring the conversation back to Europe, where we, we touched upon uh, the States, mm -hmm. we touched upon Asia. So maybe let's focus on uh, our own backyard. What is the situation in Europe when it comes to, to fintech? And are European startups and entrepreneurs catching up with, with this global wave? Um, yeah, well, definitely in Europe there is an increased interest in the topic. Uh, I think what is really um, um, really interesting about our market in Europe is that the fintech companies, uh, first of all, there are different types of um, um, financial institutions or different types of companies that uh, participate in the development or the provision of fintech uh, solutions. And this can be banks, traditional banks, as I mentioned. Uh, what is um, common for Europe, like the smaller fintech companies, uh, more like technological companies that develop the, the technology that uh, is used for the products and services. And then you have like the big tech companies like uh, Facebook and um, and financial, for example, in, in um, China, which is notably one of the biggest one in the world. So I think our market uh, does not have, it's obvious that our market does not have these big players like um, um, in in um, in the U.S. they're called GAFA, uh, Google, Correct, Amazon, yeah. Facebook, Facebook, and Apple, and it's BAT in China. It's uh, Baidu some, yeah. and Financial and Tencent. Tencent is also quite big. Some people, sorry to interrupt, say that the next decades are going to be dominated by 
gaffers with bats or bats <laughs> with funk. So yeah. Uh, well, we're we're missing on the whole party here in Europe, I would yeah. say. Um, because here in, uh, here we don't really have these kind of like really huge big com- um, globally operating uh, social media like technology companies uh, which is um, mm, can be a drawback but can also be uh, really positive for the development of mm-hmm. our market because I think uh, in cooperation with traditional uh, banking institutions or with these uh, foreign, um, social media platforms and technological companies, I think we can all also really nurture our market. Okay, to be, to be fair, we are falling behind um, in terms of developments here. Uh, our adoption rate is not as high um, in Europe of the new technology. Uh, the investments are not as, uh, as big as in the States or in China. Um, companies are much smaller and uh, with not that uh, huge market valuation. Um, generally, you, um, I, I think, can look into um, uh, how significant different parts of the world are in terms of fintech um, through uh, how developed their um, so-called fintech hubs mm-hmm. are. Um, so globally, I think, uh, in the past couple of years, you um, there is a um, global fintech hub index that um, ranks uh, the different cities around the world in terms of their significance with fintech. And uh, there are like 30 that are really developed uh, with uh, serious um, either global or regional significance. Uh, And of them, the first seven are like really global fintech hubs uh, where you have lots of investments, a a lot of business, a lot of companies developing different sorts of technology. You have the talent, you have the Mm -hmm. people uh, there. Mm, And these are basically number one. Beijing. Then you have um, San Francisco, New York, London, and the rest is all in, in China. And we just lost London a couple. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, well, it, when it comes to uh, geographically, it's still in Europe, but when it comes to uh, EU policies and um, regulation and governance, yeah, we we lost that. Um, but um, yeah, the the biggest fintech hubs are not in Europe, uh, and of these. 30 that I mentioned, there are several further down the, um, the list uh, that are in, in Europe and have huge potential. These include, for example, Paris, um, Stockholm, Berlin, Zurich, Amsterdam. Um, there are some also emerging ones that in the next couple of years can really uh, get really developed. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, for instance... Um, Vilnius, I think it was very interesting. Uh, Warsaw, um, uh, Frankfurt, obviously a big financial center in Europe. Um, but the reality is that the majority of where these developments are happening are are outside of Europe. And they're mainly, in for the biggest part, they're mainly in China and the US. Uh, but once again, in China, they're really more developed in terms of um, government backing and uh, spending and investments. Citizen adoption and optimism to use mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. so what can Europe do when we talk about policy? When we talk about spe- specific strategies and measures, 
what can be done on European level so we can actually boost our ranking? Uh, well, I think definitely government policies and um, both national and on EU level can really have an impact. Uh, because from what I've seen in different parts of the world, um, uh, for example, data data policies or uh, government in investments nurturing um, and government spending on different uh, different projects and different um, um, initiatives can be really important and boost. Um, boost the development in the sector. Um, so what we have right now in Europe is, I would say, uh, unexploited single market mm -hmm. uh, in that particular field. Um, we have a huge single market in Europe and we have very fragmented, um, not really um, sp specific to nurturing uh, policies in the different countries. Um, Obviously, every every authority, every government uh, is trying to strike the the right balance between um, nurturing this, um, creating an enabling environment, while also dealing with uh, money laundering issues, um, financing terrorism, and uh, protecting the consumers and the investors. Um, but I think in Europe, we definitely need right now. Um, a more overarching um, strategy on how to do that. Um, the the way is already uh, paved by uh, some directives for the financial sector mm -hmm. um, that really set the, the tone for a common um, financial sector um, um, convergence in, in, in that sector. Uh, for, for instance, we have the um, Payment Services Directive, mm -hmm. PSD2. Uh, we have um, some uh, regulatory um, reporting standards through several other directives. We have the GDPR for, for da uh, data protection. Um, so we can take that and, um, I think, come up with a common uh, fintech strategy for uh, the whole of Europe. Uh, Right now, regulators in Europe are uh, already developing different different strategies, having these so-called uh, innovation hubs or sandboxes. These are like uh, innovation facilitators for the financial sector, where companies and the, and the business can come come together with the regulator and explore and discuss uh, the new uh, services and products, um, and. Yeah, last year, uh, no, I think in March 2018, the European Commission came up with the FinTech um, action plan. Uh, very ambitious. Um, I think they had um, um, 19 particular strategies on uh, actions on how to um, achieve this. Uh, but so far, um, I think in terms of legislation, we're we're really lagging behind. Um, the only thing that legislative that has come out of um, the FinTech Action Plan is the, um, I think the uh, crowdfunding platform um, legislation. Uh, so I think there is a lot to be done in that particular area when it comes to 
uh, European level initiatives. So it's been two years and the commission hasn't really done its homework when it, when it comes to, to fintech and maybe the member states also haven't really responded properly. No, well, a lot has been done. Uh, for example, there's uh, the EU fintech lab, which connects uh, regulators and government bodies with the business to discuss different technologies. There's the European facilitator, um, f financial innovation facilitator, I think, F5, um, which, um, uh, which is like a forum for um, EU regulators uh, to come together and discuss ideas and to have some level of convergence of their ideas. Um, a lot has been done in terms of uh, assessing the, um, the licensing barrier, barriers, for example, or uh, what can be done to facilitate this, uh, how to respond to different risks and vulnerabilities. Um, but I think what we are really missing is how to really um, boost these companies, these uh, fintech uh, companies, and how to improve their, um, their competitiveness globally. Hmm. Final question as we're running out of time, if you can provide a couple of key recommendations on the European level, when we talk about fintech, what would they be? Uh, I think the, the first one that I already mentioned is that we need um, an overarching strategy for the whole of Europe and how to um, make the best out of the single market. Uh, I think also it, it would be good to focus on, on data and uh, how data is used and how um, where, where it comes from and how it is used. Because I, I don't think we can and we should regulate the technology itself what i think we can do is focus on competition and where this competition comes from um, and who um, uh, generates possesses and controls the data uh, so i i don't think we can really com compete with the big techs and and all the data that they have but we could potentially um focus on how to um to better make this data available to to other other parts of uh, other companies or fintech uh, companies um, open uh, banking is something interesting that psd2 um, introduced uh, and i think uh, something in that direction would be uh, really useful um, there are all sorts of different strategies that can help um, nurture the enab enabling environment uh, for these developments in Europe. Uh, I think um, maybe focusing on these like cutting edge, really disruptive technologies like artificial intelligence, having the right algorithms in place, big data analytics. Um, there are certain parts of fintech um, that um, governments in the EU can particularly target. Um, also, I, th I think it's a topic that needs to be addressed at all sorts of different levels, including the talent we have in Europe. How do we attract more talent? How do we um, train people um, to go in, into this particular sector? Um, how how much investments do we have in um, in that sector? In in China, for example, it's not a secret that uh, the development of the fintech industry there has been booming l largely due to 
um, direct government investments through state-owned uh, funds, for instance. Um, so we need to think about the money, the people, um, the regulatory framework that is conducive to development in that sector. Fantastic. Stelina Kuzmanova, thank you very much for joining our podcast. Uh, dear listeners, if you want to know more or read more on the topic, um, please uh, download or catch up with Stelina's recent report, Fine-Tuning Europe, How to Win the Global Fintech Race, available on the Martin Center website. Thank you for tuning in and join us next month. That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. Follow-